It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 in your Bibles this morning. If you found it, would you say amen or let me know or something that you are there. All right, Romans chapter 1. Well, three weeks ago, we started uh, this study in uh, verse 18 to 32, which is a very long paragraph, and it's, it's broken up into several paragraphs, I should say, but it's one basic thought throughout this passage of Scripture and it is um, a difficult reality, uh, this passage is. And that is in light of our culture, our um, current culture, this is not often talked about. And that is the subject of the wrath of God, the wrath of God. By the, verse, the passage opens up in verse number 18 where it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Um, very much has been said about Romans chapter 1. Um, and there is perversion that is talked about in this passage. Really, that's the whole idea of this passage. And, and it has been talked about in many ways ad nauseum and rightly so it has been talked about. But the purpose of this passage is not to pick out certain people groups and talk about them or certain specific sins and, specific, and, 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 and focus only on those. The purpose of this passage, I would submit to you, is one that encompasses all mankind. We must be careful, I should say it this way, we must be careful that in this passage we see ourselves. That we don't just see other people who might have sins that are differing than ours, or maybe they have sins that are similar. Matter of fact, when, towards the end of it, we'll, what we will see is that the sins listed are, are ubiquitous sins in all mankind for every one of us. You see, without a doubt, the propensity of man's heart is to find himself good and to find others less than good. That's kind of the nature of who we are. And Paul deals with this very clearly in the book of Romans. And I would even submit in Western Christianity, this is part of the problem I would, again, I'm making some introductory statements to establish the case of the text. I would, I would submit to you that there's this problem sometimes in Western Christianity that it's very easy to see Scripture and the negative aspects of scripture through the light of another person's life. Let me simplify that. It's easy to read scripture and not see yourself, but see somebody else. It's easy to do that. And it's easy here. 
And I'm burdened that if we're not careful, that's what we'll do with this most important passage of Scripture. And this, this passage and this understanding that we're going to deal with and we have been dealing with in Romans 18, that we'll deal all the way, 118, all the way to verse 32, is imperative for our overall understanding of the book of Romans. And I would, again, make this bold declaration that it's imperative for our understanding of our overall understanding of the word of God. Now, you say, Pastor, are you saying you have something new? No, absolutely not. This has been preached and taught for centuries, but there's been, for a lot of reasons, there's been this movement away from self-inspection to others' inspection, and if we're not careful, we'll continue that very problematic lineage to the next generation of those who come after us. The Apostle Paul is writing in Romans chapter 3, turn there with me real quick if you would, over to verse number 9, helping us to understand the lost condition and the, the, the condition of I'm going to use a word here. I don't want you to read too much into it, but the depravity of all mankind. And he talks about it in verse number nine. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jew and Gentile, that they are all, and again, this word all is the Greek word pos. It's a little powerful word in, in the scripture and the, means the totality. They are all, every man from every group of people are all under sin. In verse number 10, as is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this passage is clear that we are all under sin. And those who have used this passage back in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, our text will be 22 and 23 in just a moment. But those who have used this passage in what has become, who have solely or exclusively used this passage in what has become a sexualized culture in which we live are certainly not wrong to do so and certainly not wrong to do so at all but it must be kept in light the reality that this passage is not talking exclusively about sexual sin but it's talking about the sinful heart and the dark heart of all mankind everywhere and our propensity towards darkness. That's why the passage says in verse number 18, Paul begins, for the wrath of God. The word wrath is the Greek word orge, and it means the divine judgment of God. It is settled, determined indignation. Here's what that means, that God has already determined what the judgment will be for the person who violates his law. It's settled. It's determined. There's no talking yourself out of the judgment of God. No, no, it's already determined. There's no free spots. There's no like, oh, I've heard this so many times in my life uh, when talking to people about their eternal soul or sin or whatever. And they will say, when I get to heaven, we'll see what God has to say about it. No, no, folks, it's already settled. We've already seen what God has to say about it. And it will not, cannot, is unable to change. That's what the word wrath means in its clarity. It's not an emotional outburst. That's the Greek word thumos. It's, it's not an emotional outburst like you and I might get 
mad when somebody cuts us off in the road or, you know, our hamburger comes back without mustard and adds mayo or whatever. It's not that. It is settled or determined. You see, we understand this, that God perfectly loves. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure goes beyond the highest star, reaches farther than the widest sea. The love of God is beyond man's comprehension. And I'm thankful for that. But understand this as well. So too is his wrath. God perfectly loves and God perfectly hates. God is perfectly hates unrighteousness and he loves righteousness. And this is not a new concept. I, we've been dealing with this now for three weeks. And you say, well, why are we dealing with it again? Well, in part because we live in a culture that conveys this idea that everything about God is just love and kindness and, and, and he's just so nice. And, and all of that is very true. But it's almost like, like people view God as a, as a cuddly golden retriever. He just comes down and gives you whatever you want. And if you're feeling bad, he licks you on the foot and he just makes your day better and just take him for a walk and he'll brighten your day. And boy, isn't God just really, really nice? Well, yes, he is. Absolutely he is. We are all men most miserable without the love of God. No doubt about it. But there's more to him than that. And one aspect of his holiness or his character is his wrath. Of Jesus, the prophetic psalm, what's called the messianic psalm, psalm about the Messiah, Psalm chapter 2, verse number 12. The, the scripture says, kiss the son, talking about Jesus, lest he be angry. Kiss means to submit. Lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Psalm 45, verse number 7, the scripture says, thou lovest righteousness and hated wickedness. In the New Testament, the scripture is very candid about this. John 3, 16, that anthem of the scripture, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That word love is that word agape and it just, it means amazing love that only God could love. But notice the balance of that in that scripture. God loved you with a love that no other human could ever really love you with, a perfect, unadulterated, uncontaminated, undiluted love is what he's talking about there. God loved you that much that if you believe in him, you should not or you will not perish. Not implying, but directly saying that if you don't believe in him, you will. Well, what does the word perish mean? It is spoken of a physical death. It's spoken of an eternal death. And it means a future punishment. John the Baptist goes on and he's asked by a group of Pharisees later about Christ and salvation. And John the Baptist says, and through the inspiration of God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, he says in John three thirty six, he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That word abideth, I say it almost every time, is a present, perfect present tense verb, meaning that the wrath of God is already abiding on the person who has has rejected or not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And to not accept him is to clearly reject him. 
For there is no staying neutral with Jesus. It's not like saying, oh, I, I don't accept him. I'm not going to believe that he's the son of God, but uh, I don't believe that. I don't believe he's an evil guy. I just believe he's probably a good teacher. No, no, there's none of that with him. In God's economy, either you accept him or you reject him. And if you don't accept him, his wrath is already abiding on you. You say, Pastor, you take a hard line. I, I don't take a hard line. God's word does. I mean, if, I, if it was up to me, this, this is literally what I would say. Listen, just come, be happy, mow your neighbor's grass. It's all good. But that's not what God's word says. God's word is very clear that if you don't accept Jesus Christ, the wrath of God, the orge of God, the settled, determined indignation of God already rests on Well, we saw two weeks ago in verse number 19 that the wrath of God, verse 18 really through 32, there's four reasons, five reasons for the wrath of God. We've dealt with two of them so far. And we saw in verse number 18 that the wrath of God is exercised on man or, or pushed or given to man, if you will, on man because in verse number 18, because of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Verse number 18, why is God's wrath seen on mankind? Because of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We saw two weeks ago before Father's Day in verse 20 and 21, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his, God's eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. We saw two weeks ago that the reason for the wrath of God is man's willful rejection of God. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament or the earth shows his handiwork. We understand that man, in order to reject God, you have to make the decision to willfully reject God. The Bible goes on to say in verse number 20 that the invisible things of him are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so much so that, that people who reject God, if you look at verse number 20, they are without excuse. Oh, they can make excuses today, but when they stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords, when they stand before Christ, when they stand before him at what's called the great white throne judgment, where all people who reject Jesus will be judged, when, when they stand before him, the Bible literally says they are without excuse. So I don't think this question will be asked, but maybe it will be. I don't know. But if the question is asked, why did you reject me? No answer will be justifiable. They are without excuse. It is a difficult and powerful reality. Well, why are they without excuse? Verse number 21, it leads us. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but, became, but neither were thankful, but became vain or worthless in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. In other words, verse number 21 leads us to this reality that in the heart of man, God has placed a desire for him, and God has given us creation. And God has given us the firmament and the skies and the stars. and God has given us all of that to point to himself. 
so that man is without excuse. And then God has given people to go and, and to take that general revelation of God, the, the, the creation, the firmament, that's the general revelation of God, and to take that general revelation of God and then be very specific that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and yes, he was there at creation. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit spoke the world into existence in six literal days, and Jesus, who was there and is our creator, left heaven and came to earth and died for your sin and mine. And if you will repent of your sin and trust him as savior, you are guaranteed that he will save you and give you eternal life. He promises that to all who will receive him. And he sent preachers there and teachers and what we would call soul winners, evangelists, people to take the gospel to unreached people all over the world here in the U.S. and all over the world so that they can know Christ. But people reject God willfully so that they are without excuse in the end of verse number 21 and they're foolish remember that word is empty or worthless was darkened well the third reason for the wrath of God being exercised on every man is because man's rejection is rationalized Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Man's rejection is rationalized. Affirming, the word professing just means affirming. They're just affirming themselves to be wise. The word wise here is a word. We've got to do a little bit of work, and we're only doing two verses today because we've got to unpack some important thoughts here today that are essential into our understanding of this text. And the word wise is the Greek word sophos, and in classical Greek, it described respected philosophers and other learned men. So learned men and respected philosophers in the Greek culture were considered wise. But in the New Testament, sophos, and in the, its Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament, differ from the classical meaning in two ways. Number one, the biblical concept of wisdom is... I'm going to use some big terms here and I'll explain them. The biblical concept of wisdom is what we call theocentric. Theo or theos is God. That's why we have the word theology. Ology is the, means the study of theos. So theology, the study of God. Theocentric means biblical wisdom has God at the center of wisdom. All wisdom flows out from God. There is no wisdom in this world that God has not given. Man does not come up with any wisdom that is surprising to God. We like to say it this way around here. It's just a catchy phrase. It's simplistic and, and, and beautiful in its simplicity. All truth is God's truth. We could say this, all wisdom is God's wisdom. Theocentric, where man, biblical concept of wisdom is theocentric rather than anthropocentric or where man is at the center. Biblical wisdom denotes a fear of God and an understanding of his ways, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The reverential fear of God. Proverbs uh, 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. 
The second way it differs, and this is primarily important to us, is that wisdom signifies the possession of a certain adaptness or practical ability, biblical wisdom. It does not necessarily imply brilliance or scholarship. Here's what I mean. Some of you probably got like 1,600. When I was a kid, SAT scores got 1,600. I think they've changed it like 42 times since then. I'm not that old. I'm only 23 and, uh, or 48, whichever is bigger. Uh, but some people could get a perfect SAT score, but they can't tie their shoes. You ever meet those people? It's like, dude, you're like the smartest person ever. Have you heard of the word comb or deodorant or a napkin? And dude's like, no, I've not ever heard of any of these. But I can tell you the quadrilatic theorem of something that I've... As soon as they use a five-syllable word, I just start taking a nap. I'm a, immediately asleep in my... No, I'm not really, but you get the idea. It does not imply brilliance or scholastic training. Nothing wrong with that. We have really smart people in the room today. Very, very intelligent and bright people in the room today. Probably not the guy talking. But we, we have that. That is not wisdom that the Bible talks about. That's knowledge. It might be brilliance. It might be brightness. But sophos, this word that Paul uses here, professing themselves to be sophos or to be wise, indicates an adroitness or the ability with skill um, to, to do what one knows to be right, especially in regards to biblical truth or biblical wisdom. An ability and a skill to, we could say it this way, to apply what you know to be right to your everyday life. That's wisdom. In our text, it's skilled learning, this wisdom. Intelligent, enlightened in respect to things human and divine. Specifically to the philosophy among Greeks and the Romans, these God-rejectors rationalized their rejection. These self-defined wise men were, in actuality, verse number 19, professing themselves to be wise. They defined themselves as wise. They said that they were wise. They, they self-defined themselves as uber-intelligent and wise men, learned men, men of great intellectual renown and acumen. But the scripture says, professing themselves to be wise, they, in all actuality, became fools. This is not a pejorative term here. It's a statement of fact. Fools simply means to make dull, to not be acute, to cause something to lose its taste or its purpose for which it exists. When used of the mind, it means to make foolish or dull or to show to be foolish. They showed these men, here's what Paul is saying, through the Spirit of God, these men through their actions and statements and belief, they showed that they are in effect dull. They're not acute. They're not bright. They bring no light to the world. They're not sharp. They're like an ax that cannot be used to cut wood. They're not doing anything for which they were created. They are fools. One commentator said this, the mind devoid of God's truth has no way to discriminate between truth and falsehood. 
The mind devoid of God's truth has no way to discriminate between truth and falsehood, between right and wrong, between significant and trivial, between the beautiful and the monstrous, or between the ephemeral, just means a short period of time, or the eternal. These dominating worldly speculations often infect the church. So here's, here's these, these minds, and they can't distinguish between the beautiful and the monstrous, between the ethereal and, and the eternal. <coughs> And, 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 and they, they, they do not understand the eternal or the trivial. They are, they are worthless minds. And the author here says these worldly speculations have infected the church. Because, for example, gifted and articulate unbelievers have so long and loudly touted evolution as scientific fact rather than physiological. Uh, philosophical theory, many Christians have been intimidated into accommodating their theology accordingly. In the name of theistic evolution or progressive creationism, they not only compromise scientific integrity, but also an infinitely more disastrous compromise God's revelation. They accept, Christians accept the unfounded foolishness of unregenerate men above the flawless truth of God's word. They accept the unfounded foolishness of unregenerate men above the flawless truth of God's word. We don't have to look too far into our nation's history to see this to be accurate. Most colleges in the United States that started over 300 years ago were Bible-proclaiming schools. Matter of fact, I am told, as I did quite a bit of research on this yesterday, that the, there were about 300 colleges in the United States before the Civil War. 298 of them, all but two, were started by Christian men, churches, or Christian organizations. And all of them for one fundamental purpose, to proclaim the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Yes, from a Christian worldview. Come next week, please. We will talk about our nation's godly heritage. I expected more amens there. You say, well, are you really going to do Oh, come next week, yes. Harvard and Yale were originally Puritan. You say, well, I don't know what Puritan is. Is that a milkshake? No, Puritans are the only people that make Baptists go, wow, they're strict. Nobody else makes us do that. We've never said to a Lutheran church, like, man, you guys are strict. No, we've never had to do that. Just to the Puritans. They're the only people. They're the only ones. Princeton was originally Presbyterian. Never said that about Presbyterians. But Princeton was originally Presbyterian and had a rich Christian heritage. Harvard was named after a Christian pastor. Yale was started by pastors. Princeton's first year of classes were taught by Reverend John Dickinson. Princeton's crest still says, De sub numini vigit. You have to forgive my Latin, but I did look it up on how to say things online. But I know what it means. Under God, she flourishes. This is Harvard's original mission statement. 
Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That's, that's Harvard's original mission statement. Theirs is a little different now. They have a completely different worldview and an anti-Christian bias. Why? Because they accepted the unfound foolishness of unregenerate men above the flawless truth of God's word, and they just got tired of the fight. And so because of, of that, they began to rationalize their rejection of God's truth, which is exactly what verse 22 is talking about. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Their foolishness leads us to a much deeper truth. And the fourth reason for the wrath of God on man. In verse 23, we see man's religion revealed. Man's religion revealed. Basically, every false religion of all time is encapsulated in verse 23. They, verse 23, they changed the glory of God into corruptible man. Changed means to change from one thing to another, to set up an image in the place of the true God. We have to do some, they changed something that was beautiful and amazing and they changed it into something completely different to change. We all know what that word means, but we have to do some work on this next word. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God. The doxa is the Greek word. We, Many of you maybe grew up in like liturgical churches that before you left, you sang the doxology before you left. And, and uh, uh, that's where we get this word, the idea of glory. In a general sense, glory is a glory of God, which is absolutely true and changeless. God's opinion marks the true value of things as they appear to the eternal mind. And God's favorable opinion is true glory. God's favorable opinion is true glory. Glory, therefore, is the true apprehension of God or things. The glory of God must mean his unchanging essence. The glory of God is what he is essentially. The glory of created things, including man, is what they are meant to be by God, though not yet perfectly attained. That is the glory of man is to attain what God desires us to be. But the glory of God in this text, they change the unchanging essence of God, the uncorruptible God. They changed that. Uncorruptible, exempt from wear or waste or perishing, which is characterized by the body of man. Like our bodies just break down, don't they? The younger you are, you think, man, I'll never break down. The older you get, you're just hoping not to break down in public. I just last week, obviously, I, I announced I was sick and I preached sick and tried to escape quickly. Escape, that sounds like a bad thing when it comes to a pastor in church. I tried to escape. 
but I, I tried to get out quickly because I, I didn't want to get anybody sick and didn't know what it was. I thought it was just a cold, and then it went a little longer, and I thought, oh, it's the coronavirus, and then by Tuesday, now I'm, I'm like a normal man. I'm the world's biggest baby when I'm sick. By Tuesday, I thought I was going to die, and so I needed lots of cookies, and uh, finally on Wednesday, I went to the doctor, and I was diagnosed with strep throat, and they put me on antibiotic, and I'll just tell you, I mean, good grief, we are corruptible. This word corruptible is uncorruptible, just means free from, exempt from where, waste, no deterioration, no fatiguing, no tiredness. The older you get, maybe when I was young, I didn't feel this way, but the older you get, you start planning your naps, some of you don't know that, but the older you get, you, you, I mean, those of you that are older are laughing because I let the secret out. It's like we only get hour-long lunches. Why do we get an hour-long lunch? It takes you five minutes to eat so you can sleep for 50 minutes. That's why. In the middle of the day, I mean, you just, you just wear out. But notice this word, the uncorrupt. God never gets tired. God never wears down. God never is fatigued. He never wastes away. He never has to re-energize. He, he doesn't have a holy um, supply of five-hour energy drinks or Red Bull. He doesn't need it. But these men and their religion, they changed. They exchanged the uncorruptible God. Well, what did they change him to be like? Well, our text tells us into an image, a representation, a, 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 a picture made of gold or silver or some other material, wood, a rock, dirt. They, they made God a, a statue, a painting, an object. I've had the privilege of going all over the world and I've seen the Hindu gods in Fiji. I've seen the largest Buddha in all of Thailand. I've been to the temple of the Emerald Jade. I've, I, I, I've been all over Eastern Europe and I've seen Eastern Orthodoxy. And though they wouldn't have idols, they have images and paintings that they worship. And some people bow before a, a, a monkey in Fiji and India. And some people bow before a giant Buddha in Thailand and other parts of the world or here in the U.S. And, and they've, they've tried to take the uncorruptible God and make him into an image. These pagan hearts take what has never been seen. The Bible says no man has seen God at any time. They take what has never been seen and in their arrogance they create an image that satisfies their own heart. Oh, I think we're good. Yes, yes, this is a beautiful God for us to worship. What do they make him look like? Corruptible, that's what the scripture says. Made like unto corruptible, degenerating or deteriorating man. They changed Psalm 106, verse number 20 says, they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. Or Jeremiah 2, 11, 
He hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. They made an image out of God. They have made him look like something that they created with their hands. In essence, they are saying this, we will worship a God of our own making. And their religion is revealed. So they make God like degenerating and deteriorating man. The book of Daniel talks about King Nebuchadnezzar who makes a giant idol of himself. When you hear the sound of the psaltery and the sackbut and the harp and the dulcimer and all kinds of music, everybody was commanded to bow down and worship now, we know that story because there's three Hebrew children, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We understand that story because there's three kids that said no. They're probably not kids. They're adult men. But they're three men that said, no, we're not going to bow down and worship you, O king. And, and then Nebuchadnezzar said, either you worship me or I'm going to make this fire seven times hotter and I'm going to throw you in. And they said, you can do whatever you want to do. If our God delivers us, he delivers us. If he doesn't deliver us, he doesn't deliver us. We really don't care at the end of the day whether he delivers us or not, O king, but this is what is going to happen. We are not going to worship you. Why? Well, because of the Doxa, the glory of God, the requirement in the Old Testament. The requirement in the Old Testament is not do what preserves self. The, the requirement in the book of Deuteronomy to the children of Israel was worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve and have no other gods before me and bow to no other gods. And they said, you can do whatever you want, king, but we're not gonna violate God's word in our lives. We are not gonna change the glory of the uncorruptible God into a giant golden image made like you. And so he did. In his arrogance, threw them in the fire. I love the book of Daniel where it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, threw, they threw him in the fire and the guys who threw him in the fire died because the fire was so hot. And King Nebuchadnezzar is watching. They're watching that fire and the king looks over at it his counselors and says, guys, didn't we throw three men in there? And they say, yes, king, yes, of course, we threw three men in. He said, uh, there's four. There's four? There's four. This is the Chadwick Street version. There's four? Yeah, four. Who's the fourth one? I'm not sure, but I'll tell you this, he looks like the son of God. In the midst of their trial, Jesus was there. People are making God look like a man or a bird or a beast or a creeping thing. And so they changed the glory of God into uncorruptible God, into an image made like unto man. See, fallen man is not naturally godly. By nature, we, we read it earlier, by nature, we, we don't follow after God. We have, again, Romans chapter 3, we have all gone out of the way. We have all done our own thing. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Your neighbor, friend, or child are not naturally Jesus followers. 
We're not by nature godly, but we are very religious by nature. Some of us say, well, pastor, isn't atheism on the rise? And, and it is on the rise, and, and we're doing everything we can to shoot holes in that. But can I be very candid with you? Only about 7% of the world's population considers atheism to have any viable components at all. That means 93% of the world's population today, today, June 27th, 2021, 93% of the world's population-ish, 93-ish percent of the world's population today believe in some type of a God. And I would submit to you that even atheists believe in a God, but they view themselves as God. We're not naturally godly, but we are very religious, or the term for today is spiritual. Oh, I, I, I don't go to church and I don't believe in God. I'm just a spiritual being. We hear that touted everywhere, do we not? Everybody is spiritual. In the Eastern religions of our world, verse 23, help us to see this. The Eastern religions are, religions are growing in popularity in the United States and in the West at an alarming rate. Meanwhile, Christianity is growing at a rampant rate in the East and in Africa. It, it's, it's amazing to see what is transpiring there. Hinduism with its 330 million gods and constantly adding new gods to it is being followed at an unprecedented rate. There's a two-inch long discolored tooth from Buddha that is uh, supposed to have been retrieved from his funeral pyre in 543 B.C., it's venerated by millions of Buddhists, and you can see that at the golden, it's encapsulated or held in a golden lotus blossom, and it's housed in the Temple of the Tooth in Sri Lanka. Eagles have been worshipped in Rome, birds, hawks and storks in Egypt, Native Americans worship birds. The children of Israel made a golden calf to worship God after leaving Egypt, and God brought great judgment on them. Egyptians worship the bull god Apis, the cat goddess Bupastis, the cow goddess Hathor, the hippopotamus goddess Opit, the wolf god Ophis. Many Egyptians and Canaanites worship bulls. Some bulls were buried when they died with great riches, just like the pharaohs were. Diana, the Greek goddess, who was uh, just talked about in the book of Acts, 1927 was an overarching false god and demonic god in the city of Ephesus. Today, you can go to Karnimata, the rat temple in Rajasthan, India, in the northwestern corner of India, where the Hindu, there's a Hindu temple there where rats are celebrated and worshipped. Beliefs and practice of ritualistic Christianity differ little from such pagan superstitions. People bow down and pray to idols and, and bow before Mary and go before confessionals. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just simply saying they've changed the glory of God like unto corruptible man. People pray to men and women who are determined by some authority somewhere that they're saints and we should pray to them and they have special powers of protection do you see why this passage isn't just dealing with sexual perversion 
Oh, we'll get there. But long before we get to that, we have to really deal with the heart of the issue. We're not going to circumvent one for the other. Celebration of Eastern religion is astounding. Occult practices have been on the rise for years. All forms of this idolatry are really, not trying to be unkind, but they are really forms of self-worship. Modern day man is running headlong into the abyss of self-gratification. John MacArthur in his commentary in this passage said, Wealth, health, pleasure, prestige, sex, sports, education, entertainment, celebrities, success, and power and at no t- are being worshipped. And at no time in history have these forms of idolatry been more pervasive and corrupting than in our own day. And that was 1994. That was a lifetime ago. Some of you don't remember the 90s. They were legit. But it was before social media. I mean, people who have nothing to offer but a genetically altered big rear end have millions of followers and suddenly have credibility to speak into the ways and whims of society. And people believe it. MacArthur, in 1994, goes on. This is pre-Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. I'm probably forgetting other stuff. Snapchat. (laughs) MySpace. (laughs) (laughs) Countless books, magazines, games, movies, and videos glorify sexual promiscuity, incest, rape, homosexuality, brutality, deceit, manipulation of others to one's own advantage, and every other form of immorality and godliness. Many of those things are specifically occultic, involving magic, spellcasting, witchcraft, sex rites, human sacrifice, and even demonic and Satan worship, or demon and Satan worship. Moral and spiritual pollution is pandemic in modern society and is, de- is a degenerative and addictive form of idolatry. Tra- uh, tragically, it's being packaged and marketed to reach younger and younger Ages. That's why we took a stand in a message recently against Dungeons and Dragons. I said, well, Pastor, I mean, it's just a fun game that you can play without the demonism. I said, that's like eating French fries without salt. You can't do it. The, the, the whole intent of it is demonism and an introduction of it. And it's being packaged and churches and Christian folks are going, well, the world finds it so attractive. Why? Yes. Why? Because it's a changing of the glory of the uncorruptible God. See, before you get to the perversion of Romans 1, you have to deal with the idolatry of Romans 1. And before you go, yeah, those people, we have to start looking at even our own hearts.
the self-glorification of mankind. And the dark agenda of our own souls. That's what has to be dealt with. That's what we have to deal with. Because none of us are immune from this. You say, Pastor, are, are, are you trying to be restrictive and legalist? No, I'm, I'm just saying we ought not change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like an incorruptible man. And we ought not to speak for God when he has already spoken for himself. I am burdened with the rampant rise of affection towards Eastern religion and Hinduism specifically within gospel preaching churches. The affection for religious activities like yoga, I find disturbing on every level. When you study some of the great leaders of yoga who came to the U.S. in the 70s, they said, we will evangelize, this is my version, but you can find the quotes all over the place. We will evangelize the world with Hinduism and we will start with yoga. And Christian women specifically, because everybody wants to be flexible, run rampant after that. Now, I'm not against stretching. I do it all the time. Literally, all the time. But there's a difference between stretching and emptying your mind of everything. Our mind is never to be emptied. We're to dwell on the things of God. You say, are you against meditation? No, meditate on the scripture. It's a biblical command. But I'm not to empty myself and just think only about my thoughts and myself. That is anti-Christian. The Bible says, look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. If you want to meditate on something, honestly, meditate on how you can serve the Lord by serving people. Have some courtyard conversations. How can we serve others? And you say, well, I want someone to serve me. That happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross for your sin. There's no greater service ever than that. And probably the reason that we have some of the problems in this world that we have and in churches that we have, because the problems in the churches are not that dissimilar from problems in the world. Part of the reason we have the problems in the churches that we have is because we've started looking only at ourselves as opposed to the condition of the world around us. And God has called us to look at the condition of the world around us. Why? Because that emulates or follows the pattern that he set when he left heaven and came to earth and died for the sin of mankind. Satan is the one that said, it's all about me. I'll be like the most high. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I, 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 I. Satan is all about himself. And we have unfortunately brought that mentality into the church where it becomes all about me. 
And so the religion is to change the uncorruptible God. Really, we could, we could, this would be a modern-day translation that I would make, okay? They change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like whatever it is that made them happy in the moment. But can I give you some good news? God cannot change. Numbers chapter 23, verse number 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. He has said, hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? God is not a man that he should lie. Psalm 102, verse 26 says, They all perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. Malachi 3, verse number 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. James chapter 1, verse number 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In a world that is constantly changing and changes, we have hope. Why? Because our God cannot change. Not his glory, his love, his wrath, nor his offer of salvation. He cannot change. The heart of man is to change God. The heart of God is to change man. But God won't force you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the offer of salvation is made available to you. Jesus Christ died so that you could have eternal life. If you're not sure that if you died tonight, heaven would be your home, you can be if you will repent of your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior. The Bible says in Psalm 103, 17, that the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. God loves you. God died for you. God wants to give you eternal life. If you will repent and trust in him, that will never change. He cannot change. The reason that God showed his wrath or exercised his wrath on people is because they rationalized their rejection and they revealed their religion insofar as it being nothing more than a self-focused and self-indulgent religion. If you're a Christian today, a follower of Jesus Christ, have you changed the glory of God? I don't mean on a macro level, maybe just on a micro level. Maybe just in a small way. Oh, God doesn't care about this and God doesn't care about that. I, I feel like I've talked to so many Christians lately who've told me God doesn't care about stuff that I wonder if God cares about anything. Oh, that's what we used to believe. We don't believe that anymore. That's what the church used to teach. The church doesn't believe that anymore. No, no, no. There are some of us who are just going to hold verse by verse to the word of God and let God speak for himself and stop trying to make God say things. What he said, he meant to say. And the wrath of God is exercised on mankind. And we saw two points today. Because they rationalize their rejection. And they revealed their religion. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, 
you can move from a state of lostness because the unchanging God can never change his love nor his offer of salvation. He is unchangeable. And his desire is to save you. If you're here and you don't know Christ, he promises that he will save you if you will repent and trust him. And then Christian, I don't know about you, but there's probably some things in your life the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about this morning. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.